So next June, July here in Minnesota, are you going to complain about the humidity or do we need to send you back down to New Orleans? <laughs> Y'all love to talk about how humid it is here. Y'all who don't spend too much time in the South, but you've had your chance now. I would step outside and immediately turn into the witch from the Wizard of Oz, like <laughs> melting, <laughs> melting, what a world. Yeah, it was at like at 10, 11 at night, it would be 90, 95 degrees. Oh, wow. Humid is... As you as as that, yeah, I would not survive down there long term. <laughs> well, Great place to visit. Yeah, love the food and all that, and uh, everything that I saw and learned during the convention. But yeah, you can take that humidity and go somewhere else with it. You're, you're gonna speak a little bit more to your time in uh, New Orleans in the Fourth Movement, but uh, for right now, to open us up, I'd like to uh, announce a, a new partnership uh, the, for 140 years, the Schubert Club has invited the world's great recital soloists and ensembles to the Twin Cities and works to cultivate a passion for music through performances, education programs and scholarships, and its music museum. See what's coming at Schubert.org. Very happy to have the Schubert Club's uh, support for these uh, next uh, few months. We have a really nice partnership uh, going on. Uh, I'll speak to some of some more of what the Schubert Club has coming up here in uh, a few minutes. But I was thinking about Schubert and some of his compositions. And uh, I was also, of course, thinking about the fact that today is a very important and special day. We're recording this on September 4th, 9-4, which is B-Day. Happy birthday to the one and only Beyonce. I can connect that to Schubert because Beyonce, once upon a time, created her own cover of uh, a tune, a title that uh, made famous in part by Schubert. You've heard, most people have heard of an Ave Maria, mm -hmm. right? There, there are many Ave Marias in the, in the Western classical catalog, um, but Beyonce gave her own a few years back, and uh, we're going to listen to just a little bit of it to celebrate Beyonce's birthday on this 9-4. Uh, she was lost in so many different ways out in the darkness with no guide I know the cost of a losing hand there but for the grace of God of course from the I Am Sasha Fierce album the same album that gave us single ladies for you know the the oh, big hit that that most people would know there are lots of times Scott when I'm in the mood to listen to you know some gunplay drug music <laughs> times when I want to hear something strictly instrumental and then there are times you know maybe you can agree that I just want to hear some music with some really beautiful singing. I want to feel like I'm being sung to. You bet. And and this uh this version of Ave Maria is one that I return to a lot. Uh and one that I have shared on uh on in some radio capacities when my time there has intersected with Beyonce's birthday. That mm. for me that Ave Maria I think is just a great uh, example of something to go to to engage a classical audience with the music of, you know, the world's one of the world's at the very least greatest 
uh, superstars and uh, and to connect it to the to to the catalog like that. I don't I don't take it you've heard that before. This is the first hearing. Okay, what do you think then? Ready to uh, put it on one of your shows? Uh, I'm, <laughs> or, or would you? Would you? I don't. I don't think that there's an argument there. If I could, I would. <laughs> sure, sure. Mm, okay. Again, we'll, we'll we'll return to that in the fourth movement. Uh, something else. Uh, someone else. I want to uh, celebrate. Uh, as we're recording here before we get into the opus, is Serena Williams. A lot of people were tweeting. Everyone had, many people had right. the, the final game, the the swan song, if you will, a sort of swan song uh, playing. It was great to see Serena all bedazzled up. It felt like uh, uh, an event. All sorts of uh, celebrities there. By the way, did you see, did you see the uh, Gladys Knight uh, debacle or did you hear about that? I didn't. Uh, so Dionne Warwick, you know who she is. Of she course. Was, she was yeah. sitting in the audience and you know uh, just enjoying the match and they and the camera uh zooms to her and i'm not gonna you know be a hater and call out names but the two announcers who were women they go oh and look we have gladys knight in the audience oh no They did. They did. Anyway, that's not that that's not what I'm here to talk about though, but you know, just that that's that's still happening out here. It's 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 a mess. Oh my goodness. Um, but you know, uh Serena Williams has a connection to Beyonce as well. I think I, I've shown you this, but on Beyonce's album Lemonade, I mean, just brilliant. I have the vinyl out there. It's yellow vinyl. She has a tune called Sorry. And in the music video, Serena Williams was the video girl, all sexy and mm. dancing and, and doing her thing. Really, really great uh, visuals to go along with this very unapologetically brilliant tune, Sorry, from uh, Beyonce's Lemonade. Sorry. I ain't sorry. I'm sorry. Trying to roll me up Do any unapologetically putting my foot down moments come to mind for you when you hear that song and think about the idea of not being sorry? <laughs> and, you know, middle fingers up as Beyonce sings in this song. Yes. Do, do, do you have those moments? I do. <laughs> Who are you thinking about right now? When no, you <laughs> no, you know, no, you're not going to give me call out names. <laughs> oh, so you must be a little sorry then. She knows what she did. <laughs> Anyway, um, I'm thinking about that tune, of course, because of of Serena Williams. I think my big point in in sharing this little, you know, montage of tunes, A, number one, happy birthday, Beyonce, you know, uh, 9481. So, you know, out here, um, 41 years old. And and still ruling the world has more music that she's going to give us more visuals looking sexy looking uh, uh, inspired and and inspirational and then her work connecting with Serena Williams I think it's it's really cool to think about that on the on the visual space all of these things connect that's not what is being debated I think sometimes what we debate is do all of these things belong in a classical a so-called classical conversation or a so-called classical space how far when we connect dots away from you know strictly who Schubert is I guess in this uh, in in this conversation how con- disconnected from the core of that conversation do we have to get before something 
doesn't belong in a classical space. I think the reason for not incorporating more things into classical conversations or classical concerts is a perceived lack of artistic or social connectivity. Um, I've, I've connected some dots here. As a radio host, you connect dots between a story or a life event or, or mm -hmm. whatever's going on and a piece of music. Do you think there's a barrier? Do you think there is a, 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 a gravitational sphere after you reach beyond that, you know, it can't be drawn in? Or would you argue that if a connection can be made to a composer or an orchestra or something that's deeply in the tradition of classical music, if the connectivity can be made there, that constitutes its place in the space? There's only one thing I think that's going to limit you from doing that freely, and that is the idea that, of, in the radio sphere anyway, mm. is format. And there aren't many stations out there that have that sort of free flow format like you got to experience when you subbed in in St. Louis. Give yeah. me the call letters yeah, again. Yeah, I forget, but go ahead. Okay, so shout out to the station in St. Louis that does that. There's also the Beyonce and Bach Mm -hmm. uh, specialty show. Yeah, shout was out that, to Maria Ellis. Right. Yep. What is it? An hour, two hour show? I think it's an hour. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you've got a better shot at being able to do it convincingly when you have a format that allows you to do that. Uh, unfortunately, the one that I work in at the moment does not allow me to do that. And formats change mm -hmm. as, as you have experience with and formats can shift. Sometimes something new has to be created or uh, a, some, uh, a space has to be uh, influenced in a, in a different way to just create the precedent. I feel that way a lot with Triloquy. When we sat down in front of the microphones for the very first time, there wasn't a whole lot out here like what we're doing now. And I would say still... Even now, to this day, there's not a whole bunch of stuff out there, but that doesn't mean that uh, there had to be that for us to come up with this thing and for us to do this thing. So maybe we need to get into more of that exploratory, dare I say, creative space in our programming and, and in the way that we uh, build formats and target sounds and all of that stuff to just be more encompassing based on the dot connecting that is possible. With Let me this ask you form. this. As as the first opuses, opuses mm -hmm. were coming together. Oh, bye. <laughs> is that is that the I way? I don't know. <laughs> no, opuses. <laughs> so as we were just beginning to put this together, is the iteration that we have now, is that yeah. what you envisioned? Or did you even know? I don't think I knew. It together? I, I knew that I wanted to have conversation that uh, wasn't built around the parameters of what's quote unquote radio friendly and, and all of those sorts of things. So that's why it's a podcast mm -hmm. and not a radio show. I knew that I wanted to have more voices than just ours. That's why I put so much energy into, you know, uh, having guests on the show and, and forming mm -hmm. questions and, and conversations. So no, this isn't exactly what I pictured, but all of the ingredients are still there. It's like when you are trying a new recipe and, you know, sometimes the frittata becomes a, a scramble. A scramble, or, sure. <laughs> You're, all of a sudden a pie turns into dessert topping. <laughs> right, right. Uh, I, I don't know if I would call Triloquy a scramble. You know, we're, we're pretty, you know, well segmented here into our four movements and, and everything what we, we got going on. Anyway, mm -hmm. happy birthday, Beyonce. Huge thanks to uh, the Schubert Club. More on them here in a few seconds. And to everyone listening, connect 
more of the dots. If we can create proximity between so-called classical music and the rest of the world and allow content and programming to flow based on those connectivities, we can grow our audiences and we can make sure that this thing called classical music survives in a way that we want it to. That's what this podcast is built to do anyway. Let's jump in. I'm Scott Blankenship, and this is Triloquy, Opus 164. Thank you so much to all of the returning listeners and to all of the supporters of this project. We could not do it without you. If you're new to Triloquy, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a podcast that takes the phrase classical music and sits it next to pieces of music, conversations, and everything in between that doesn't necessarily or hasn't necessarily always had something to do with classical music, but we bridge those gaps and create the dialogue around it toward ultimately decolonizing the phrase classical music. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, visit Triloquy.org. You can donate there. You can learn a little bit more about some of the people who make this podcast possible, and you can check out past opuses. In addition to your support, support for Triloquy comes from Springboard for the Arts, more on Springboard at springboardforthearts.org. I also want to send a special shout out and thank you to the Schubert Club. They have an event coming up this month that I'll tell y'all a little bit about. It's called Sound Sculpture, What is an Instrument? This is uh, to kick off the Schubert Club's 140th season. Sound Sculpture is an interactively musical instrument made up of illuminated building blocks that trigger sound based on where they are in space created by Boston-based Masary Studios. They have a coming up on Saturday, September 24th and Sunday, September 25th. I'll have links in the description. Again, more on that at schubert.org. We'll uh, go ahead and anything before we jump in any no, any hellos great. or you know say want to say hey to dad just in case he's listening <laughs> <laughs> hey dad you're up way too late <laughs> all right let's go ahead and jump into movement one so i don't know a couple months back i can't remember exactly maybe five six seven weeks ago we talked about how the san antonio symphony was folding. They, Mm -hmm. you know, couldn't reach a a contract agreement and the board said, fine, we're just going to liquidate the whole thing. Well, I'm going to offer a sharp this week to the San Antonio Philharmonic as it is now. They are returning with many of the same musicians under a new name to continue the tradition. I'm reading here from sanantoniomag.com. It says, for the first time in more than 80 years, the San Antonio Symphony will not take the stage this fall. Instead, a new organization called San Antonio Philharmonic, made up of former musicians of the symphony, will step in by presenting a full season of professional orchestral music. Scott, it's really great to see musicians doing the administrative side of the work as you know the deeper i get into the arts admin aspect of my work 
in general. The more I think about when, you know, when I'm on some of these, you know, challenging uh, Zoom calls or, you know, trying to figure out funding and realizing that, oh, this thing that we have usually done, this didn't make the budget this year. So what can we squeeze to, you know, anyway, so Mm -hmm. all of those behind the scenes conversations and things that I've had to engage, it's raised my appreciation for a lot of that behind the scenes work. So I'm just really encouraged to see that there are musicians who are willing to do something other than sit in a practice room with their instruments perfecting this repertoire that folks have been playing for over a hundred years, you know, or in in the case of this ensemble, 80 years. Um mm-hmm. and, you know, rolling up their sleeves and 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 getting to work. I wonder if you have uh, thoughts or ideas about the difference between being the the one who is visible, the one to the front versus the one who shapes it all together. I mean, in radio, that's definitely a thing when we talk about hosts versus programmers versus producers versus, you know, even board operators, if that's something that yeah. that you do. Thoughts on the behind the scenes versus in the front and, and who's doing the, the more important work at the end of the day. <laughs> well, keep in mind that all the people that you see out front, yeah. you know, people like yourself or your, uh, your musicians, if you're a... Uh, uh, a music ensemble mm-hmm. you know that there are far more people behind the curtain that you don't see making sure that everything is going smoothly so that that person has everything that they need to do a good performance yeah to um be able to have a, a good on-air shift you know all of these things are uh thanks largely to people who are you who you don't see mm-hmm. and frankly need to get a bump in pay Oh yeah, for and sure. And also uh some some recognition for what for what they do. Yeah, I wanted to start there because and again no sh- no shade to musicians or anything, but I definitely feel like there are a lot of folks on the inside of classical music, orchestral music, on the musician side that take for granted that, you know, mm-hmm. that paycheck that you're cashing, it came from somewhere. Yeah. And there were probably some arguments and some <laughs> and some uh, arm wrestling, proverbially anyway, and all sorts of stuff to help make that possible. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to read a quote um, from Brian Petkovich, who's now the San Antonio Philharmonic president. He's also a bassoonist. He says here, our musicians who hail from around the world and now call San Antonio home are determined to instill in our neighbors the excitement of great music to move audiences emotionally during a time of disruption and change. This is an historic opportunity to do something special and lasting, and we invite everyone to be a part of continuing this cultural legacy for San Antonio. I think, you know, something that audiences, speaking of, you know, what people take for granted, may or may not take for granted, I think a lot of audiences and music lovers take for granted that Many, if not most, members of a symphony orchestra in any given town are not from there. So they have made right, the right. investment to call a new place home. And if, you know, a, a, a orchestra folds like this one did, there are many who can, you know, find another audition and pack up and move again. But that doesn't take into account the members of a symphony that have embedded themselves in a community are now, I don't know, uh, partnered or married to someone who has a job that has to you know, that you have to live in, in San Antonio to have, you know, people have built families and, and all of these, all, all, all of that stuff to say, I think it's important to understand that there's also that aspect in it for the musicians building something to sustain themselves in this geographic place that they have called home. Mm-hmm. You know, let something really weird happens and, you know, NPR 
folds. That's not going to happen, at least no time soon. But do you feel invested enough in uh, Minnesota, in the Twin Cities, to try to build something here? Or would your you know, first thought be to see what else is smoking in another town? Great question. But before I answer that, let me ask you this. Just to, because I've never gone up for an orchestral audition, sure. how many might be happening in the country at any one time? Just ballpark. I'm glad you asked that question. So I'm I'm going here live on on tape to musicalchairs.info. This is uh, one of the main places people go to look up orchestral jobs and auditions. Mm-hmm. So if I'm just I'm on the front page of this uh, of this site. This says performance jobs. So this is uh you know all of the listings for the performance jobs, and we have this number here 489. That is mm. not nationwide. And that is not instrument specific. There are currently, as 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 according to Musical Chairs, four hundred and eighty nine jobs on the globe for any instrument in an orchestra. Wow, that's that's how tight it is. So let's go ahead and click on it. We can see that there are globally twenty three open flute chairs, twenty one open clarinet chairs, eighteen open bassoon jobs. I'm gonna uh, click on bassoon here. Go to Tasmania. We we, we have Australia. If you want to play down there, uh, we have a, a, a orchestra in France. The Navy band is looking for uh, a bassoonist. Well, you know, I'm not shaving my head, so, th- so that's it. Okay, so we have Portland, Oregon, but this is a contrabassoon position. Okay, I don't own a contrabassoon, so how so how am I going to practice for this audition if I don't even have the the instrument? Richmond Symphony again, a per service contrabassoon job. So not only do I need a contrabassoon, I need another job because it's per that's service. This this is gig mm. gig work, you know. So we continue on. We see um, the Finnish National Opera Orchestra, another. Uh, ensemble in France. All of that to say that, to, to the, my long way of answering your question, is tight out here. Right. So that's another reason why folks living in a community would invest energy into creating something in their community because it, it ain't hardly no jobs. So and I have dug in roots in this place, so I better figure it out. Anyway, all of that just to you know return to my original question: How would you weigh? cashing in on the investment you've made in a community versus moving away and starting over again. I personally feel like I could pick up and move and would be missed by like six people. But that doesn't mean that you, but I'm, that's an important aspect. You know, you also have to consider, you know, because there are a lot of times in my life when I've had to start over when it comes to where do I go grocery shopping Mm -hmm. or where is the gas station? Oh, oh, so do I have a bank that's near? Do I need to switch banks? You know, so there are all those parts of the conversation as well. The social aspects are important, but the the day to day pragmatic things can can be a a lot to do as well when you're, you know, figuring out a new place. Let me also tell you that the the market for a specialist like somebody like you or I who would be primarily a classical host it's narrower and narrower and narrower Mm -hmm. as people move those services over to like HD1 or HD2 on their signal or um, you know they spend less and less time uh, dedicating themselves to that format it's tightening up so if I were to step away from it and Mm -hmm. look and I would I would look somewhere else I could see myself up along you know Duluth all the way up to Grand Marais you know, and why don't something. I choose to play principal bassoon with the Honolulu Philharmonic? You know, like why not? <laughs> Go right ahead. <laughs> because ain't no jobs. It ain't no jobs at the North Shore either. So it sounds like you <laughs> stay right. in here in St. Paul. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is what it sounds like That's if you right. had to figure something out. <laughs> Probably. Probably. <laughs> um, you know, 
and and we can talk about all this, but it's a fresh start, and I think it's exciting for this group of mu- musicians to have a fresh start and to and to be able to you know just codify something new or to continue the same old same old. So let's go ahead over here and visit uh, the San Antonio Philharmonic website. I knew let's that's see what where they have going. coming up this season. All right, so this month in September uh, on the 16th, so that's next week or the week following, they're doing uh, their first classics concert. Uh, it says Ken David Mazur conducts Romeo and Juliet and Bolero. So you have Prokofiev, uh, you have Ravel. Uh, they're doing the St. Anthony Variations by Brahms, which is, you know, I, I, don't, I don't hate on that piece. It is a very beautiful piece. And then it also has a piece here about a composer last name Wickman uh, with a piece called Emergence. So there is something new on this concert. Three of the four pieces are business as usual. If we uh, take a look at their second classics concert, uh, they have... uh, programmed here uh dances in the cane breaks by florence price so you know that's a piece that's you know making 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 the rounds more and more um brooks first violin concerto and dvorak's eighth symphony so from my perspective with this brand new ensemble you know made up of musicians we're seeing that same pattern of okay let's sprinkle something in there but most of what people are here for is you know the the canon, canon. the Dvorak, the mm-hmm. Prokofiev, the Brahms, the the Ravel. Are they making the right decision, or are they circling, doing the same story that that got them here in the first place? My question is: Is it their decision? Who's who made the decisions? And I'm going to point out a paragraph in the uh, SanAntonioMag.com article that you highlighted. It says here, they say the first season is possible thanks largely to individual donations. Mm -hmm. So do we know if the people who gave the money had a say in what they were going to do? I mean, they probably they probably absolutely had a say and maybe and we don't have a list of donors or anything, but I think it's safe to say that folks who want to see that sort of programming are probably the primary folks who have have you know, paid to make this new organization mm-hmm. possible, San Antonio Philharmonic. So then that gets us into the conversation, where do we draw the line between shifting a narrative to a new audience and, you know, milking, milking the udder that you've been milking? Right, which is the bigger gamble becomes the question. Mm-hmm. Are we going to uh, build a fan base quicker by going with something new? Or do we start with some of the canon and some of the new in order to try to straddle both both audiences i don't know it's a good question and I, I guess that's a question for the folks making the you know ceo pay or the president or the, the director of whatever you know that, but they that's, do that's have, up to them they do seem to have a pretty heavy focus on spanish and mexican composers in the program so that's good that makes sense for them on on some of these concerts i mean they have some they have some pops that that speak to that and i will say uh they, it does look like they've also laid very heavy on the education concert so you know I guess, I, I guess conditioning the young children to love ravel so that by the time they you are you talking about grown. indoctrination? <laughs> I, I I am, but you? you know. Anyway, shout out and congratulations to uh, the San Antonio Philharmonic. Again, I'll I'll just loop back to my first comment and say it's good to see musicians rolling up their sleeves and making something happen. Let's see what happens yeah. because the programming looks pretty, you know, status quo to me. And I don't. That's not me talking bad. That's just me, you know. No, everybody can, the tea. This yeah. is called triloquy. Everybody, everybody <laughs> can go and look at the website. So. Yeah. 
Well, uh, coming up in April, the San Antonio Philharmonic has a show called A Fiesta Celebration, and uh, it's going to feature a flute player named Elena Duran. I I hadn't heard of uh, Elena or Elena Duran, but I uh, took a listen to a few of the tracks, and she has some really sexy music out there. So we're going to transition into our next accidental uh, with Elena's rendition of Besame Mucho. It's an arrangement by Luis Zapeda, who is joining Elena here on piano. We'll take a listen to a little bit of this to get us into our next accidental. tune Besame Mucho? Of course I do. Where, where does, where, t- t- tell me a little bit about it, because that, that tune is a little new to me, actually. The first time I heard it was on the soundtrack to Strictly Ballroom. Okay. Besame Mucho, Kiss Me A Lot. I brought that in. Oh, did you? Yeah. I think it was Wes Montgomery playing guitar. Oh, okay. On Besame Mucho. Okay. Yeah. Kiss Me A Lot. A lot, yeah. of, lot of kissing. A lot of kissing. <laughs> really, really nice, sexy tune there. Anyway, before, before we leave San Antonio Philharmonic, listen, uh, <laughs> What? I don't know. Maybe I'm just a, a grumpy old grandpa. I'm not, I'm not huge on a lot of website animations and graphics. Like I just want to have to to know what I need to click on. I don't need anything to move, you know. Because maybe I'm reading something, you know. So when there'll be the scrolling, you know. And this is just a personal preference. I'm not. This isn't strictly to the San Antonio Philharmonic, but it's, for me, when I go to a website, I like to see everything that's there. I don't want to see anything moving or scrolling so that I know what to click on. <laughs> oh, oh, so you're talking about like when there's a menu that scrolls sure. left to right that you don't have control exactly. over? The horizontal? Exactly. Mm. Or, you don't like that? Or, no, I don't. And while I'm here, we also have to uh, website people, you know, especially in the arts. If you have sound files or, or sound whatever's on your website, you need to make sure that there's volume adjustments there, and you need to make sure that there is start and stop capabilities. I'm oh my gosh. There. I don't I'm work at you. NPR anymore, so I can say it used to drive me nuts when I would go to, let's say, the Performance Today website, and I can't pause. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm supposed to just sit there and I'm, listen to the whole thing. I'm with you there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, just things to consider as you're developing your websites to meet your equity goals, your audience development, X, Y, and Z, all of that. Anyway, all right, we have uh, one more accidental here. I'm going to give it a natural. And when I came across this, um, Scott, I thought about you because I know about your days in the acting world. This comes from TheGuardian.com. Uh, the headline is, Actors Endure Litany of Misery in Auditions, says former RSC director. Just in our notes, I, I uh, tagged the article and said, auditions are ghetto because they are. <laughs> I mean, you know, I understand all of the things that this writer is talking about. You know, they, they talk about directors looking at their phone or, or being, you know, in a phone call with somebody else while they're trying to uh, do their audition. Uh, 
I could see where that would happen, say, in the bigger venues or in film and TV and stuff yeah. like that. In community theater, I did not experience that. Okay. And in, and let me tell you something else. If you were going to come and audition for a show that I was directing, you better bring something, a snack and a juice box because I'm going to keep you there for a couple hours and we're going to go through all the different combinations and I'm going to give you different motivations and we're going to see who's got what. Okay, but see, now I have a problem with you because at least when I go take an orchestral audition, they know after five minutes if they want me or not, and I can go along with my day. So you mean to tell me you're going to have me there all day going through all of these different roles and configurations only to tell me, okay, well, no, thank you. Maybe. <laughs> you said maybe. <laughs> maybe. But here's the thing, because when you audition for bassoon, yeah. nobody is listening to you for violin. Help, yeah, help me understand because what you're as saying. you're as you're playing, yep. nobody's going to go. Hmm, I don't know about his bassoon work, but he would be good for this violin part. That's true. Because That's true. When you're auditioning, see, Our I conductor, can, <laughs> the bassoon playing is fine, but I wonder what he would look like on the podium. Yeah. see, we need more of that. See, bring <laughs> and, that in. But, but really, the converse. But go ahead. No, so that's my point: is that while I'm working everybody in these different combinations, mm -hmm. somebody might have come in there thinking that they're auditioning for this certain character, and then I hear the way they bounce off somebody else, and I go, "No, no, you're the lead," mm. because I'm listening to the way they're working without with. with other people yeah so i mean i don't know i think an orchestral musician might be a little bit pigeonholed that way you know but, and and you're hitting on something good because a, a, one of the reasons for that pigeonholing is the path i i started playing the bassoon and flute you know at the same time mm -hmm. i'm a much stronger bassoon player than flute player because there isn't a lot of room to study you know, multiple instruments to the degree that you have to to get into these orchestras. There, I'm sure there are a few people who can play multiple instruments to the level to win an orchestral audition, mm -hmm. but I don't know them. You know, I mean, it's and and I'm and I know a lot of of uh, multi instrumentalists. So I think there's something to what you're saying. Maybe switching up uh, the way that we look at curriculums to allow more time and space for proficiency on more instruments would, you know, broaden the field or diversify the field. If you know, if I didn't have to search specifically for bassoon jobs around the world, which we've already established, there are 18 open positions globally. So you know, maybe if if I was comfortable taking an open audition or a cello audition you know i would have you know mm -hmm. a, a, a better chance at getting into one of these orchestras Anyway, I'll, let, me, let me read just a little bit from um this article so uh first and foremost this comes from adrian noble he's uh written uh, a book he's written some literature on you know critiquing the the audition structure over in uh, the uk even specifically when it comes to shakespeare and he doesn't just criticize he you know offers some advice i'm reading here he says uh, when it comes to folks who audition, do thank them for coming in. Do try to give immediate, clear, positive feedback on what they have done. Do study their CV before they come in and don't read while they are performing. Do have water available and throw away cups. Do offer them the opportunity to try again if they wish and you have the time. You can judge how they take direction. You know, if I'm translating all of those please do's into you know, my experience with orchestral auditions, this would be the most luxurious. I mean, I'm saying, I mean, f feedback, the feedback part is, is so important and folks just don't give it. I've been on the, um, the judging side of the curtain when it comes to orchestral auditions. And 
I take as many notes as I can. And I guess I don't, you know, especially when you're talking about 150 oboe players, you know, the last audition I've set on, I think was an oboe audition. You have 150 folks. I'm not going to take the time to send 150 emails because I got to practice and keep my job. You right. know, um, but I do take notes. And if people ask, I have them available and I'll just mm. send send them those things or or mm. whatever. Um, so the, the water and the reading, the CV and all of that stuff is important. But for me, if there's just one huge thing that we could change about the, the audition thing, and, and even outside of orchestral music, just in general, if you're auditioning for something or even interviewing for something, that feedback can you know, be the exact keys you need to have a successful sure, next, next audition time. or a successful next interview. Yeah, because I've never, ex I've never seen anything like what you're mm -hmm. talking about here. Having all this, you know, essentially a green room with craft services set up <laughs> while you're waiting for your audition. That doesn't happen. And doesn't it say something about the industry that they've got this meat grinder set up and people willfully walk into it? Yep. Yep. At, for the shot. Now, like I said, I haven't actually auditioned for many films or TV or anything like that, but Scott Working was in LA twice. Mm -hmm. Shout out to Scott Working. And he was talking about going to commercial auditions where th that the, one of the guys waiting to go in an audition has done uh, a Huggies commercial. And yeah. this guy's the face of Ace Hardware. And this guy's in all the Home Depot commercials. Right. You know? And he's like, I'm up against that. I might as well just turn around and leave, you know? And those actors are, they're getting chewed up too. They're, they're trying to put kids through college. Yeah. They'd like to be able to retire. Yeah. It's a, it's a meat grinder. It's one of the, one of the curses of, of uh, having that artistic sort of uh, drive and desire. I Why think. do you think I didn't move out to LA or New York and, and try it? You, I mean, you tell me because some people move out there and make it right. Right. So they're, <laughs> so are we talking about self-confidence are we talking about you know uh perseverance or you know because because all of both. because all of these actors we see on tv have these stories about mm -hmm. how tough it was uh what, that's why you have go yeah, ahead and that's why you have people that are taking advantage of a powerful situation and yep. victimizing uh young actors and actresses that's true in order the and they're they're that hungry and and the, I guess the same applies on the on the musical side. I mean, I don't know how many times I've been in auditions, and there are folks saying, "Oh, well, you know, I'm I'm just here for the experience." So people who have decided that they aren't going to advance, much less win the job, but they are even considering the act of going through it as a part of the the learning process. It, yep. But but of course, you know, airlines have made money off of that. Oh, I'm just here for the experience. You know, you got to pay for gas. You got to have a hotel. When it comes to opera, you got to pay for some of these auditions. So they're even making money That's ridiculous. Off, of, off of people you know, not being able to get the get the thing or just here for the experience of it or whatever it's like i said auditioning is ghetto <laughs> Your words. i finally watched um uh what's the movie uh uh the multiverse of madness mm -hmm. <laughs> and no and no spoilers but you know they're they're jumping universes and at one point the character christine asked another one of the characters oh so what's your universe like <laughs> i paused the movie and told dell if that was me in the cage and someone asked me what my universe is like i would be like child it is ghetto over here <laughs> they, they, there it's is the, global warming it's the worst timeline people are racist over there it it, it, it is something else and how did i get i forget how i got 
got onto that. But mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, uh, before I before I leave this um, article, I wanted to go down here to the bottom. So in the mix of uh, re-engaging what the audition process looks like over there in England, there's this uh, actors union called Equity. Um, and it says here, Equity is particularly outraged that actors are increasingly being pressured to sign bullying and overreaching non-disclosure agreements before they can audition, which means they do not even know what kind of character they are being considered for, let alone anything about the production. Actors need time to prepare for particular roles. Mm-hmm. I want to highlight that because when we are lucky enough to get into the room, we are so quick to sign paperwork and to say, oh, yes, this is fine. That is fine. But in the performing arts and in the creative arts, that is something that we on our side of, you know, the performers, the the non-gatekeepers need to consider mm. and be more aware of. It is predatory just because they're like, you know, like we've already highlighted, there's so few positions or roles or jobs open and it's treated like, well, you you need to be doing everything you can to suck up to right, us right? so that if we're even looking in your direction, we can start going, oh, okay, well, this person agreed with all of these things, the non-disclosure or whatever. But I don't like that. The, the, uh, this outrage actors are increasingly being pressured to sign bullying and overreaching non-disclosure agreements, mm-hmm. meaning... That, by that the means time if you, someone calls you a bitch, you know, you, can, you can't sue because you signed an NDA. Right, right. Which is going to happen as soon as you leave the theater anyway. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Right. As soon as they're t- saying goodbye to you. You know, so not only have you signed your rights away, you don't even get the opportunity to make no money off of them. But just mm-hmm. last, yeah, just last week, though, we were talking about how there's always somebody younger, quicker, and hungrier than you that's yep. ready to take your your job. So if I say, yeah, I'm not I'm not comfortable signing any of your paperwork, they're going to go, "Great. See that guy down there who has a full head of hair? We're going to go and talk to him." <laughs> you can't see the hair over the radio though. You have to it's the voice for radio that matters. Yeah, but I have a face for radio too. <laughs> no, what I'm talking about is the is the acting gigs, you know, oh, sure, because sure. Uh, how much emphasis is put on appearance there? Come on. And then, you know, just as we were talking about the um, Opera de uh, Verona thing a few months ago, sure, you know, shout out to Angel Blue. She can step back and say, no, y'all are doing blackface in this establishment. I'm, I'm not here for it. Mm-hmm. And what happened? They found someone else to do it, you know, right. someone else who did not have a problem with it, someone else for whom that was not a deal breaker. They did it. There are many aspects of the conversation. If if the folks on the on the non uh, institutional on the non gatekeeper side, if we you know could just be empowered to put our feet down more often when it comes to certain things, these structures would change. But because there's always someone there to deal with the bullshit, mm-hmm. things persist. It's even as it says uh, at the end of this uh, article, uh, the union believes that NDAs like that are inappropriate and excessive. But at the end of the day. Desperate performers will sign anything. It's a sad reality we're in, chicken and the egg, you know, as far as what's going to institute the change, how how the change is going to happen. But hopefully, I don't know. I'm, I'm not in the acting game, so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I hope they're having that conversation. As far as the orchestras, you know, I'm very proud to, you know, work, you know, shout out to the American Composers Orchestra. You know, we're not an audition orchestra. Uh, ACO prioritizes uh, diversity and disruption. So that's what we're looking at first. 
We're, we are an example. There mm-hmm. are other examples out there. We just need more people to step up to the plate and join us so that, you know, the audition process can become more equitable. Because if the audition process, if getting in the door is problematic, imagine what's what it's like once you once get in the house. There, once you're in, yep, You see, yep. it, it's, it's even worse. Ooh, anyway, uh, I'll have that linked in the description for y'all to check out. So, you know, when I think about auditions and as, as a bassoonist, There are two pieces that come to mind. The Overture to Marriage of Figaro, because we have to play that motherfucker every time. Mm -hmm. I mean, every time you go to an audition. Mm -hmm. And and that's and that's, you know, you'll you'll play that for 15 seconds. So they're like, okay, thank you. So you're done. You know, after after flying across the country. But the other piece I think about is the Rite of Spring. For the second movement. I'm bringing in a little bit of music from an arrangement of the Rite of Spring uh, that I hadn't heard before, uh, Herbert uh, Hubert Law's arrangement. I'm going to go uh, a little deeper into the piece for uh, to shine a light on it in the second movement. But in the spirit of auditions, we're going to listen to the opening bassoon solo in this arrangement, and I'm going to you know audition it. I'm going to offer some comments. So oh, let's listen a little bit of this to I'm get into the second to this. movement. takes it over there so rite of spring first first and foremost before we even get into it, i need to say this is not new music the rite of spring is over a hundred years old so we need to stop acting like this is new music who said it was new uh, ev- who you tell me you work in public radio i never said it was how new. often how often does the rite of spring come around <laughs> it's treated like new music is it not is it's treated like you know, it's in the same category as the Philip Glass and the what, however radio stations sort of categorize different pieces, pieces that you'll hear every week, pieces that you'll hear once a month, maybe even uh, uh, less frequently than that and everything in Twice between. Twice a year. Sure. I'm sure the Rite of Spring is in one of those categories at most radio stations mm. and even the, unless y'all are playing the Rite of Spring every week. I don't know. I don't listen. Are y'all? No. Okay, I, that's well, what I, I mean, thought. it doesn't come through on my shift. I can't speak to anybody else. <laughs> anyway, but my, my point is, is that a lot of institutions will take music from, from the early 20th century and use that word 20th century to mean right. new or contemporary. Right. Well, we're 20 years in to the 21st right. century. Anyway, I just want to make sure I'm, I'm making that point. Uh, when it comes to that opening, I really appreciate the way that uh, that bassoonist that we just heard from contextualize it and, it and it sound very improvisatory. But I'll tell you right now, he would definitely or she would definitely be cut with that really? arrangement uh, or what with that approach to it, mm. because that's just not the systematic way of being a classical musician. But mm. I think that's one of the reasons why I was so attracted uh, to that arrangement and this album. So Jim, shout out to my friend Jim, gave me this vinyl called The Rite of Spring and it's pieces from the canon as arranged by Hubert Laws. So The Rite of Spring recording that song there, it's not the whole piece, but it takes some of the major sections of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring and puts it into a framework that incorporates some jazz or uh, some different sounds. And I think this Rite of Spring is is really dope. So I just want to share a little bit of this uh, more active section of Hubert Laws's arrangement of the Rite of Spring. I think it 
gets into something, something that we don't hear every day in classical spaces and something that I think it would be cool to center a little bit more often. not a Beethoven piano concerto. It's not a, a piano sonata by Chopin or one of your other favorites. It's very much instrumental music. For me, it was very much, you know, morning music. I was sitting there with my coffee, but I wasn't embarrassed when people walked by my window because I'm listening to the, you know, same old stuff. Mm. <laughs> And, and and I just found myself just spending a lot of time with it. I had never heard of uh, Hubert Laws. Again, shout out to Jim for uh, giving me this vinyl. I think it's, um, you know, some great music to spend some time with in a more chill, you know, how, how can I say? I, I think it perfectly splits, okay, I want something that... I, I don't need to use too many ear muscles to enjoy, and this isn't just the same old sleepy time music. It has a little bit of, of meat to it. So I've, I've enjoyed on this album. There are also sort of jazz rearrangements, as I mentioned, of uh, some of Bach's Brandenburg music. Sure. There's a, a really cool arrangement of Farre's Pavan that uh, opens the album up, but it's that arrangement of Rite of Spring that I've been spending some time with. I think it's a pretty cool recording. Man. How far into the audition would that flute player have gotten with that treatment? <laughs> they <laughs> see the thing is they would have listened to they would have, first of all been like, oh, okay, what is what's she doing there? So uh, or he uh listened to the whole thing and then said, Okay, thank you. <laughs> you think so? <laughs> and then at the lunch break talked about, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we could have that flute player with the emperor? You know, so there's there's an acknowledgement of it being good. There's also and I don't, what I would imagine, anyway, an acknowledgement of, you know, that doesn't belong here. Keep all of that outside. Okay, you know? <laughs> so you said you said that the Rite of Spring was the one that you were uh, the feeling the most. What was number two? What What was the number two track that you let, liked? Let, so I'm, I'm, let's try a little bit of this Brandenburg stuff. A, a rearrangement of the third Brandenburg uh, concerto. I don't. I don't know. For me, it's it's the the hi hat in the back. You know, that suspended symbol that mm. gives it a little flavor. It's it's just like taking you know your classic meat and potatoes that you know you eat on Tuesday evening, and I don't know putting a little cheese on the potatoes or putting a little cayenne on the steak. It's just that little bit of there seasoning. There was no cayenne there. there. <laughs> <laughs> so you say okay, but you know, but th th that's plenty of cay cayenne as compared to what. 
is still being performed. Just the regular plain old regular Brandenburg concerto is on classical radio across the country. But you, what? so yes, if that's not cayenne, we really eat and bland what, most of the time. What absurdist English television <laughs> sitcom theme music was that? Listen, no, you, okay, you, you can make fun of these arrangements all you want, but I think my point stands is that not, that is not even making it into the spaces as a normal part of the aesthetic. So, so okay, so then let me ask you this question. What role does a revamped phrasing mm. of something from the canon play in moving this music forward? I is say, it enough? I, I say that should replace what 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 is what is typically in those spots. So if if there is room for a Brandenburg concerto in anyone's programming, as it is, uh, you know, in performance spaces and on radio, instead of let, let's just get rid of the the traditional. Uh, recordings and arrangements and put that there instead. So if you really just need to talk about Bach, you can. And at the same time, it has just a little bit more, even if it's just this much, even if it's just a pinch of salt, Mm. it has that much more that wasn't there before. And I think can be used as one of those stepping stones. Again, it wasn't the Brandenburg that was getting my attention as much as the rearrangement of the Rite of Spring. But even so, Mm -hmm. I think, Brandenburg's that sound like that, you know, uh, examples as we as we have here from Cuber Laws is a, is a great way to be that stepping stone. I mentioned that it opened with an arrangement of Faure's Pavan. Mm-hmm. Well, we always play the Pavan um, as as sung by um, Don't Worry, Be Happy, uh, Bobby McFerrin. Bobby McFerrin, you know, with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. That's that's another example. This is me, you know, as, as it was said, again, back to um, Multiverse of Universe when Wanda said, this is me being reasonable, mm. you know? <laughs> this is me being reasonable, okay? This, this is okay. me saying, okay, fine. Here's some Bach, but can we at least put some seasoning on it? Or if this is the rite of spring, can we at least hear it with a little bit of drums and some uh, improvisatory flute solos or something? We can we can do that much toward you know actually shifting the thing. So anyway, okay. that, that's that's what I've brought in to share. I, I, I spent a lot of time with you know some uh, lots of different music last week, but I, I wanted to share this because I was thinking about you down at PRPD and mm-hmm. you know what are the stepping stone types of aesthetics that aren't too scary for the you know traditional audiences, the so-called traditional audi- audiences. So I'll, I'll have um, uh, those linked in the description. If you've never heard of Hubert Laws, I would say uh, check it out. He has some uh, classical rearrangements that are pretty cool. In my book. So that's what I have to share this week for the second movement. So now let me shit on what you got. What you got. You, I dare you. <laughs> I dare you to. Um, I want to give a big shout out to the soul queen of New Orleans. 81 years old and still a voice that flows as easily as a fountain. Uh, effortless, you might say. Irma Thomas, you know the name? I do now, but tell us more. Irma Thomas has one of those voices and a style. I mean, she was, you know, they 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 put her up there with Aretha Franklin, but she didn't mm-hmm. she didn't have the commercial impact. Sure, but uh, I got a chance to hear her perform, Irma perform, and she has a lot of music that makes its way into popular culture in ways that you don't know it's her, Mm. right? So there's a Philadelphia cream cheese commercial right now that uses her song, Take a Look. Okay. So the next time that commercial comes out, you go, oh, that's Irma Thomas. But you remember the uh, Black Mirror episode of 15 Million Merits? Yeah. 
the song that um, Mr. Kuyuna's love interest was singing. Okay. Uh, anyone who knows what love is would understand. Sure. That's, That's one of her songs. Irma okay. Thomas. And the thing about, uh, this goes back to that idea that uh, we've talked about before where my uh, guitar teacher used to say he would like to hear a simple song performed well than the most intricate kind of sloppily performed. Sure. Well, there's a simplicity to her approach that is so satisfying that it makes you kind of turn your head to the side and just kind of go, oh, this is so damn sweet. And to hear her perform, anyone who knows what love is, was just one of those moments where all sorts of different kinds of refer of, of um, uh, placements throughout our popular culture came together in that moment there at PRPD. All of the comments, uh, we're listening to this off YouTube, all of the comments are making reference to 50 million merits and, and Black Mirror. So, mm. you know, what, what that says to me is that large projects, large platforms have the opportunity to help us return right, to this right. classical American music, these names who we don't know as well as Gladys Knight and not Dionne Warwick, you know? Well, what I mean to say is, you know, not confusing those right, folks, right, you know? Right, right. So, right. so we, we know Dionne Warwick, we know Gladys Knight, we know Aretha Franklin. Not everyone knows Irma Thomas, not as well as those names, but Black Mirror mm -hmm. has helped people know more of that. You know, to an extent, I think we all have that ability to put folks on to something that is so beautiful and so foundational to the sound of a place and a time. You know, mm. just just uh, as we were saying in the uh, in the opening, connecting those dots. And her, vo you you get what I'm saying though about the effortlessness. Yeah, of, yeah, just uh, of like that just instrument, easy. just easy. And yeah. and how and doesn't that just make you want to just sit in her lap and and just <laughs> go? Yes, yeah, say it again. See, you know, straight men always just overreaching. Didn't nobody say nothing about sitting in anybody's lap? You know, you can enjoy. You them. know what I'm saying. <laughs> Don't go I'm pulling there. your chain here. Thank, thank, <laughs> thank you for for sharing that. You know, I, I was talking about in the introduction. Sometimes you want to just hear somebody singing something to you and mm. singing something beautifully. That this this is an example of of what I mean. It's not the rah rah music. It's not the loud guitars. It's it's not the you know Beethoven anything. It's just a nice song. It that, is that you get to listen to. Let, let's check out just the 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 end of this to you know wrap us wrap us up for this second movie. If they try love. Again, anyone who knows what love is by Irma Thomas. And now, Scott, you get to say that, that you've heard it live 
and in person. The Soul Beautiful. Queen of New Orleans. Beautiful. It even has a great ring to it, her her title. Yeah. Well, uh, for we're getting into the third movement here, and I'm very, very extremely honored to be able to feature my conversation with Karen Slack. If you don't know who Karen Slack is, she is a groundbreaking opera singer, uh, a founding member of uh, the first iteration of the Black Opera Alliance. I think it was last year she was named a Sphinx Medal of Excellence recipient, which comes with a, a $50,000 unrestricted grant, you know, which is great. Mm. So Karen Slack is out here doing some incredible things. She played the mother in Joel Thompson's The Snowy Day, you know, which we oh, talked sure. about uh, mm-hmm. back uh, back earlier this year. So really doing some incredible things in opera. Uh, Karen Slack uh, is also the host of a show called Kiki Conversation. So a multi-talented uh, person who I talked to about the state of opera, uh, what some of the uh, pathways to and through the field look like and what it means to create some connectivity as we're trying to uh, move together in uh, creating change. So uh, to get us into my conversation with Karen, I found um, a recording of her performing a tune called Prayer by Carlos Simon, another uh, in- incredible uh, musician, composer, and member of the Triloquy family. So uh, this is Karen Slack accompanied by Dr. Howard Watkins. This was a part of a collaboration with WQXR out of uh, New York. So anyway, a a little bit of this to get us to my conversation with the one and only Karen Slack. Hope y'all enjoy. particularly those of us who have pushed our way to a place in, the, in, the, in our industry where our art is seen in a much bigger mainstream, like, you know, we are in the one, two percent, three percent, whatever that means. And of course, there are tears in that within that system. Exactly. As well, right? Yep. Um, which we can speak about, too. But um, I feel like many of us felt confident because of our positions to be able to have those kitchen table talks in in public and we had to we had to i'm I'm sure many notable artists um no matter what color you were 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 very afraid to be able to speak about any kind of injustices Mm -hmm. industry at all you know you're supposed to sing and dance and entertain people like you know shut up and dribble which is what i was told like a year after doing combos like okay now you need to go back to singing because you need to just stop talking mm-hmm. you know um but yeah it it i mean having those conversations changed the whole culture of opera yeah it it seems like <laughs> instrument I, i'm an instrumentalist so i can say it it seems like we're a little bit more reckless than singers tend to be i mean is there just a, a culture surrounding you know what you're talking about the proverbial shut up and dribble is is it a, a detriment to the career of a singer to put her real opinions out there into the public 
Yes. Huh. Yeah, you guys are protected. You have a union and orchestra. You have, um, what can I say? How can I say? You guys come into your art much sooner than we do. Singers come into their art because our voices, because a voice is a different instrument, right? It's in your body. It doesn't mature mm-hmm. until, you know, until you're in your 40s. So many, you know, you don't start actually learning how to be a classical musician until you're already a grown-up. But when you guys have had agency much, much years, decades before many of us. So there's a different way you move than we do. So how have you traversed that? You know, I'm grown and I have to get into this industry the best way I can. For me, I've always been a um, a person that was never afraid of what I thought because I had such a clear, I have a clear vision of who I am. I've always mm. had that. Everyone, if you meet me, that's the person that you always gonna <laughs> know, mm-hmm. gonna see, you know, I was raised like that. Um, but I also am very respectful of other people. And I know, I don't know, it's a gift, I guess. I know how to say what I need to say without offending. You know, I, I'm Switzerland. I'm good in that area where you're gonna, you're gonna understand what I'm saying without me, you feeling offended, you know, mm-hmm. so I know that, that is part of my gift as well. Um, but also, what's right is right. What's yep. right is right. You can dress it up. You can do whatever you need to do. You can say all of the colorful words and do all of the things and pretend like you're doing the action. But right is right. Yep. Yep. You're reminding me of something that I hear from a lot of uh, the videotapes from some of the legacy singers, you know, the Jesse Normans and and all of those people, the block out the noise. People are going to be saying a a lot of things you need to focus on the art. Do you agree with that? It seems like you need a little bit of that noise to be the fuel or, or, or your ambition or something. Yeah, it's a different generation. Those those they were focused they had to break down barriers boulders mountains you know um uh, uh who was it um oh gosh how could i forget her name kenny did an interview with uh, leona mitchell talked about oh, how yeah. when she was speaking up for for black male artists she got blackballed you know and her whole she lost her whole career in america um, you know, even with her coming just, just uh, I guess before even Jesse Norman, yeah, mm-hmm. in a way, um, it was a different time. Now, after pandemic, those I feel black artists are expected to be. We are expected to to have come into the space with an opinion, with a a certain kind of energy, and I don't think everybody is meant to to be in those positions, be in those places, are ready to do that. But it is expected that we all have an opinion about inequity. Right. <laughs> you know, the, the, I, like y'all really don't want to know what I think. <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to give you the <laughs> the version where I'm going to be satisfied with what I have to say. And you're going to also understand what it is without being offended. Um, uh, yeah, it's just a, I think now, I don't know. And I don't know how long that space will be. You know, there is a jump. But then again, even in the art, there's a gigantic leap between Jesse Norman, Denise Graves, who is arguably the next generation of major opera superstars. Mm -hmm. And you get Eric Owens, Big Gap. Then you have Larry, who's, you know, slightly smaller of a gap. And then who else? There's I mean, as far as mainstream, as far as visibility. And then between Denise and Larry... Like his career is not as 
equally arguably as you know in your in 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 you know getting perfume deals and you know sure every in all the major black and white publications so like you know we we, we need to talk about that inequity you know um it's just different it's just very 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 different I yeah think. it seems like Every time we get to conversations like these, the first thing people tend to do, and I'll even go as far as to say black folks, is to start arguing amongst ourselves and, and pitting, you know, ourselves against each other. What, what are your thoughts on approaching these conversations in the spirit of unity instead of the spirit of who's right and who's wrong? Yes. Um, <laughs> well, I have to say, and this is the first time that I've said this publicly, when we were in this was after george floyd was was murdered and we were all you know having these conversations watching this whole trauma happen to all of us there was a lot of infighting that was happening in public on Facebook. right what i did was i saw a lot of the fighting and i saw a lot of the generational things and i, and I was a part of some of that because i was being asked to do panels and they kept and I felt people were starting to say, well, why do they keep asking the same people to do panels? And why do the, you know, and this is probably after the LA Opera panel. And I, and I said to myself, well, we need to get all into a room. And so I called my friends, Kenneth Overton and, um, and Russell Thomas. I said, you guys, we need to cook out. We need to get all the black people together in one space. And we need to decide how we are gonna move forward as a community. And so we used Russell's Zoom for Oberlin because he could get over 400 people on a Zoom. Kenny set up the Facebook invitation. I, you know, we came up with the plan and we had the cookout. And there was like 200 black uh, singers. And mm -hmm. four and a half hours later. Because <laughs> <laughs> we'll take all day. <laughs> right. And the conversations and the just the energy and what it was was all of the things that were happening out in public was was now in this private room and i was like oh god we really we, we need we help we need we needed this and so after four hours or whatever we came back and we decided that we were going to meet a couple weeks later again as a group bring in the international group and everybody was going to go and kind of do their thing in the meantime kenny said we need a we need a, a title he taught kenny came up with black opera alliance which was quite, which was quite um, a, a, a little, it was a little thing about Black Opera Alliance in the beginning, but, but we decided on that. And so, and then something happened, of course, we're going to keep that in a private group. <laughs> and it broke off and another group decided to take, to, you know, to take the name and there is, there is started the Black Opera Alliance in the public. Um, and... It, it was born out of the idea, the, the what I was seeing in the public. I did not like the public fighting. Mm -hmm. I did not like the attacks generationally. I did not like the attacks on the on on the the singer, the more established singers against the artists who were coming up, or you know, I just didn't like that, and I didn't think it was. I, I don't like that on Facebook because it's like everyone else gets to be a, um, a spectator in this sport that we don't need to be a part of as a community. And so I don't, I tried my best 
And I used my platform and I used my position to bring people together. And I'm, and I'm proud that I was able to birth something like Black Opera Alliance and it was able to do what it did in the, in the you know, public sphere. But um, I think that when everyone, because we buy into the, the white supremacist idea that there can only be one, hmm. that we can't have our own without having white people co-sign when we support just the top tier uh the, or the artists that get to break through the top or just the met the the big companies the career right we all strive to have the career and we all are conditioned to support all of that and so that's 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 the only way we can break the system that's so, of, of all the infighting is if that we if we decide as a community that we can do that and we can do the other stuff too because mm-hmm. if you want to have a, a career international career in opera yeah there's some some pills you're gonna have to swallow like you ain't gonna go in there you know uh i'm black 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 black, black. you ain't gonna go in there with that kind of energy if you want to play in their spaces but you have to also know that there are other spaces for you too and we have to elevate those spaces so what is the role of someone who is not black in some of these more traditional spaces working to affirm folks who are blackity black in those spaces? Is there no room for uh, adjustment for, for people who want to bring their whole selves, maybe even their exaggerated selves into La Scala or the Met or, or any of these big places? There should be, but I'm, I'm going to have to be honest with you, particularly in Europe. No. Mm. They they not they're not there yet. They well, you not say there. yet, which is hopeful. Hopeful, hopeful. I don't know if I'll if we'll see it in our time. Maybe you know, uh, my my dear sister Angel made a Angel Blue made a real big statement. Yep, she did pulling out of Aida, which had nothing to do with Traviata. Like she wasn't even in. They weren't even on the same, <laughs> you know, plane. And for those who don't know, you know, she decided that she would um, Angel Blue fantastic soprano she's one of our superstars now decided that she was not going to sing be the first black violetta in la traviata in italy in one of the most prominent summer festivals in all of opera and she made took a stance and she took a hit she took a big hit i don't know if she took the hit to the career but she took the hit publicly And so we got to see some ugly stuff, some ugly comments and some awful, you know, um, well, anyway, what we know, what we know happens. Like we know that the people say that and they think that or whatever. So, yeah. We can uh, just, uh, again, just remaining hopeful, I I suppose. Yeah, I remain hopeful. And, you know, I think it's funny. It's funny because when we do Porgy and Bess and we go into the, um, the theaters, we are our full selves. We go in, the rehearsal starts 20 minutes late because everybody's <laughs> hugging and kissing. And, you know, it is like a family reunion. And those of us who have don't who don't have the experience of being around other Black people, they sit in awe because they're like, they don't know how to eat. They've been yelling and whistling and trying to get everybody together. And it ain't going to happen. <laughs> you know, because so, we and then we all get up and we sing our faces off. Yep. But the idea of community, idea of how we come into 
So we can come and support you within the fullness of who we are because they can't tell you to act whatever, you know, they can't tell you, but in other, in other spaces, you know, and, and, and also you don't have the protection that you do in Puerto protection. We all are together when you're the only one. It, it, it's, it can be, it can be a little tricky. Sure. Sure. And thank goodness for the spaces where, you know, we aren't the only one. I'm thinking about your uh, performance uh, in the snowy day, just an incredible role. I had the pleasure of uh, featuring uh, Andre Davis Pinckney on the show, as well as uh, Joelle. I want to get your thoughts on the snowy day or, or maybe even just being in opera spaces where you aren't the only one. How how does that manifest? You talked about the sort of family reunion aspect of it. How does the artistry manifest in these spaces that, you know, allow for different black perspectives on the same stage? Oh, it's it's not like nothing you ever experience. I mean, <laughs> it's like you come in and you all just these sounds like the soundscape of the black voice of the voices of color is just different. And so it's like, as well, there's a, a warm hug that they say in snowy day. And mm -hmm. it, you know, first of all, you bring that into the space, you bring the luscious gorgeousness of Joelle's, which music, which is just, it is all the way soulful. I told him, I said, when I hear you snowy day, I heard Prince Stevie wonder, uh, Jimmy Hendrix, like I heard all all of the composers, all the composers, <laughs> Mozart, Rachmaninoff, like Tchaikovsky. I hear all of that, and that is what we bring into the space. That is why it is so sacred. That is why it's so magical, because we have all of our experiences and all the things. You know, I grew up in the golden era of hip hop. I'm from Philly, like that's what I'm bringing to what I sing. And mm -hmm. that's why people are moved by my my singing when they speak to me and they talk to me. Like I'm, just, it's just a part of who I am, but snowy day, it was like this, like, oh my God, nobody's crying. Nobody's dying. Nobody. And that's all of opera. That's not just, you know, trauma opera, but that is, it was just so magical. And, um, I, I and very different from any of the other pieces that I've done that, you know, predominantly black stories, but I just hope that every, everybody saw themselves. Everybody played in the snow. If you grew up, you know, mm -hmm. and, in the snow and just kind of like meeting a friend and, and it, as a kid, like, you know, nobody cared about what you looked like or what your nationality was. Kids just played together, yeah. and they, you know? And so it's, it's, it was magical. And to be a part of Joel's first opera was, was very humbling for me. Um, to have him write something for me was very humbling. And Andrea is like a superstar in her world. Oh yeah. So I'm in, it was just, you know, and kudos to, to Patrick Summers in Houston for um, and and also give God give it up to my girl Julia Bullock. It was her oh, idea. Of course. It was her idea to bring that story to um, to 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 Houston to bring it alive. So yeah, and you're no stranger to world premieres and and new music. Is that a world that you just fell into, or do you have a specific interest in putting new music on the stage and realizing it? I do now. I felt kind huh. of fell into it. Um, but I always love to put my stamp on stuff. So I always like to, <laughs> I sing from a place of, I want you to feel like you heard this piece for the first time. Mm -hmm. So I guess naturally it's sort of fit for me. But um, after doing a couple of um, uh, Dead Man Walking, you know, Jake Hagee wrote Dead yep. Man Walking. 
And after doing Sister Rose, which is a, 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 fe- a black female character, soprano role. And um, I said, hmm, I kind of like this new music. I don't, I can sing how I want. I don't have to spin the high C like Miss Price's Aida. I don't have to, you know, sing any kind. Of, there's no histrionics around new music. And so somebody said, you like singing this stuff? I said, yeah, I kind of like it you know and so then I started getting started commissioning composers to write things then I started getting offers to do newer newer pieces um you know of course when I did champion Terrence Terrence Blanchard's first opera at San Francisco Jazz um he's the one that said I'm writing this new opera and I think I have a role for you Mm. and that's how I got that's how I got the premiere fire shut up in my bones because Terrence heard me he had never met me before and he was sort of new to the opera scene as well so he didn't know a lot of singers but when he met me he immediately was like you're billy (laughs) (laughs) you know so that that happened with that and um yeah i and i'm also passionate about composers like that's the one thing i will say that i've always been it's always stuck with me is because they get to facilitate they get to, you know, they uh, they write the music and I get to sing the music and I and uh, and you get to know uh, who they are through their music. You get to learn about who they are through their music. And I mean, I, I'm so fascinated by how you can write these black notes on this white page and it all comes together and it makes this beautiful magic. Like, that's still fascinating to me. Even Mm -hmm. when it's bad, it's still fascinating. And why it's bad and why something doesn't work. But then 50 years, it's a masterpiece. In addition to, you know, really putting a lot of emphasis on the new music and music by living composers, um, I have been reinvesting a little bit of time into the more traditional repertoire. You know, in in an opera performance, I'm sitting under the stage. I I don't typically uh, become as familiar with the story as I do the music, but um, I recently went and saw a production of Carmen over at uh, Washington National Opera back in May. Of course, again, know all the music, can hum all the melodies, but had never actually seen the thing. And when we get to the end of the opera, I was just so uncomfortable seeing that final scene where you have Don and uh, Carmen in that struggle and Carmen ends up dead. I, I left the theater upset because I don't want to see that. I don't I'm not going to the opera to see women, certainly not women of color, traumatized and killed, even if it's just fictional. I feel like if there are certain aspects of these uh, operas that we can change, for example, the that G word, that G-Y-P-S-Y word has been shifted out in most productions of. with the word Roma to be a little bit more culturally competent. Mm-hmm. I feel like we need to go even further and just change the end of the opera and have Carmen kill Don or, or, or do something. Do, do you think there's going too far when it comes to shifting the stories of opera to fit contemporary sensibilities or should we just, you know, keep it how it is and how it's always been? No, I'm here for the change. <laughs> I'm here for it. I mean, listen, when we stop attaching dollars to art making, that's when mm. we're gonna see another revolution. I mean, that's when it that's what it comes down to. If people cut a check, a big fat check, and they are opera people, they gonna want to see him uh, her killed at the end. Like that's the that's the idea. Unless we start to create art at a with a different purpose, and to convince some of the we're gonna lose some people, but we need we're gonna add new audiences. Like we need to replace some of these people in order to make the art. Now, 
I don't want to change the music because there's nothing more beautiful than Madam Butterfly, mm. you know, and uh, so even Traviata's problematic Porgy and Bess is seen as pro- best is the liquor guzzling, you yep. know, uh, floozy. I mean, can we do we do we need to see do we even need to see Porgy and Bess anymore? Like, you know what I mean? It's it, that's a quite controversial subject and you know not only just in our community but in opera in general so i agree with you i I went to see um carmen and glimmerglass and i was like "Ooh, here we're coming to the part that is (laughs) (laughs) that's when you put your finger in the air and leave (laughs) yeah i'm like "Uh," you know and to see my beautiful sweet sister brianna hunter she was killing it i mean her carmen is is incredible and to have been directed by the Carmen of the jet, the last generation with Denise Grace. I mean, there were, they were, there were things on the stage that were happening that made me very uncomfortable. But I, while I really feel like we don't, we just need more options. Can we just get more options? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And, and, you got to throw it all out all the way. But if you give me more to digest, then maybe I'll let you have, some of that other stuff but i agree with you yeah and when you talk about more options i think about that you know for the singers outside of just the the one production you know more opportunities to sing different things and to sing in different places you know i'll i'll frame this question by saying i'm rooting for everybody black period and Sometimes I wish black folks could shift away from aspirational career things that I can't help but to tie to white supremacy. Is there room to, you know, well, I guess I'll ask, what are the both ends of that conversation? How do you how do you deal with supporting the singer who wants to go be at the Met and La Scala while also supporting those who are trying to build our own spaces where we don't have to deal with certain things that we have to deal in the, with in those spaces? Right. I think it starts with us all supporting one another first. Mm. Like, yeah, it's tough. That is a tough question because there's no way to get around if you want to have a major, and I hate major, minor, I hate all those things because a check is a check and a career is a career. And ideally, it is what you make of it. Mm -hmm. You know, you can have the teams and all these people and you can be chosen. I've seen many people have five-year careers. I've, I've, I've come, I'm, I am 40, I'll be 47 in three weeks. I started singing professionally when I was 25. I won my first major competition at 18. So I've seen people come in this business mm-hmm. <laughs> and go <laughs> and come and go and come and go. And um, what I, I will say is, is that there are certain things that you have to do in this industry to have a certain level of career, but that doesn't mean that you cannot support other artists. What is it? What does it mean to an art form when someone who has reached the highest heights of what we consider is the career coming and being like, well, you know, putting my, putting other people's names in rooms. So it, it is also with great opportunity and great success comes responsibility to right. support. And I know a lot of people don't feel that way. And I know some of people think that I'm aspirational in, in, in how I think. Because I think, like, I come into a room and trust me, I bring two people in the room with me. Either you're with me or I'm mentioning you. Hmm. I believe in that. I believe in, you know, bringing people along. Not pulling up, bringing people along. Um, we just have to... And yeah, and also now that 
and, and this time has also, what happened, what happened in this time was many of us found ourselves having agency around producing our own things. Who had that before, really? A small group of people, still to this day, only a small group of people get support for the things that they produce. Now it's, a, it's, it's bigger and you can express that you have other passions and other gifts along with wanting to sing the top 10 operas and I want to sing in all the big houses. Like you couldn't say that before and now you can, mm -hmm. you know? And so I just think that it starts with us supporting each other. And, and you know, when, when we get the check by the, you know, the, the, in the gatekeepers that we say, okay, well, so I'm here, but you do know this person over here is doing great work too. And, you know, we see that different trend in a career with a Julia Bullock and a Devon Tynes and an Anthony Ralph Costanza. All of them are in part of the same generation, but we do see them being celebrated in a way. At, at the same way that those who are singing at La Scala and, you know, Berlin and, and Royal Covent Garden, that's in the same way. So things are, fingers crossed, you know, changing. Yeah. 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 And you've, you know, mentioned a lot of names of some really brilliant, brilliant black opera professionals out there. We know all of these people, but, you know, the folks who are neighbors with me or who I see down at the gas station don't know who these incredible black people are, at least not necessarily. I wonder what your ideas are on opening the doors, not only to the concert hall, the opera house, but to our culture. How, how, how do you approach the conversation as a black opera professional opening up the art form to the folks at the beauty shop and the barbershop and the gas station and the grocery store and all these places where we are just regular black people? Right. Well, and I know I'm probably talking about the side of my other say the, the other side of my face, <laughs> making sure that people know that who what our what, what our gifts are and who we are. Because I never like to talk about what I do. Surprisingly, as, as <laughs> social as I am on the medias, <laughs> I walk to walk into a room and not tell anybody what I do. You know, but people they get the essence of they're like she must be somebody. I always get that like what are you who are you and what do you do because of the the aura right the whole presence thing. and the wardrobe let's just say it <laughs> well that's you know, <laughs> right you come into a space and they're like ma'am you know uh, what is all of this so that too but um people need to know we exist but again it is a part of that agency of like we don't have to wait for the industry to give us the the clout we got our own stuff we have to you know now we have social media we have all these things that we can connect with um with people outside of you know uh our community and more mainstream um and we have to not be apologetic we have like yeah i you're a bassoonist i'm an opera singer i wish i had 16 bars and i could you know rhyme whatever i don't have that talent but i'm a hell of a singer mm -hmm. <laughs> you know and that people need to know that we are just regular normal people we just have these gifts everybody has a gift I don't, I don't know if you saw the news, um, but, you know, just speaking of getting regular folks into art spaces, you know, Solange writing for uh, New York City Ballet. Do you have any dream collaborations? Yes, we, we all dream to, to have Solange or even Beyonce in our space. But is there something that you have really been thinking about as far as it would be really cool to collaborate with this person? Yes. Um, well, of Let's course, Questlove, he's a Philly. 
the roots, of course. We're going to speak it into existence. Yeah. <laughs> Illy Jilly from Philly. That's my girl. You know, like, um, let's see. Dr. Dre, because I think Dr. Dre is brilliant. I mean, you know, outside of the personal stuff. But you know, <laughs> right. as, far as, as far as an art artist, you know, I always feel like, you know, he's on the the... the he always is again it's about the sound like timberland and people like that like i i i um think we are the few that's you, we could add another level of sonic sounds into the art form in a way it doesn't have to just me bring me bringing my opera to it but it is bringing my gift but also all of the other influences that i have in my my singing um dramatically i would love to work with um with um oh gosh just slip about Denzel Washington Spike Lee um Will Packer like you know because I I sort of see myself as an actress (laughs) (laughs) not just a singer but um you know just yeah I I have aspirations I have dreams I have lots of you know different people that I love to work with, but, you know, but they're so far removed from what we do, you know, but I'm, I'm open to collaborate in any way because I'm a, I am a student first, mm. student first, artist second. That's how I like to lead in my art. I'm always open to this learn. And that's why I think the conversation space was so good for me because I'm listen and I just soak in every, everything. Yeah, and we need to say those names more often because the Spike Lee Opera, that's that's a that's a vibe. That would be a thing. <laughs> that is a vibe, yes. You know, and you know, I, I did not see uh, Fire at the Met because, um, of course, it was a little bit too close to me. So, you know, but Terrence and I are very close, you know. Mm. I'm doing a couple of concerts with him next season um, in Fire. And so I know that Fire was pivotal for the Met pivotal for the culture yeah the met couldn't pay for the publicity they couldn't afford to pay for the publicity that they got from that opera and what it meant to the to the culture of not just um opera culture black culture arts in general melding of the the world you know listen when we did champion at um sf jazz what four years ago carlos santana came oh wow Right. And I was just like, oh, oh, okay. Like this is a whole other other thing. And so and and we, and, and we can't take that for granted because, you know, I went to the Met for the first time to see Fire. That was my first time in that building. Right. And that's the opera that it took to get me in there. <laughs> Absolutely. And I yeah, and and you and thousands of other people, they could have sold that fire out if they had if they had done as many as Porgies. As fires as they did porgies, the Met would definitely not be broke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I have one more question, and and I know that you um, said that you know you don't like talking about the things that you do, but I'm gonna ask you to do that anyway. What do, what do you have coming up this season that you want to put folks on to? Well, I am very excited. Speaking about world premieres, I'm very excited to do two new world premieres um, of the composer Hannibal Lacumbe, mm. another legendary jazz 
trumpeter, something about those trumpeters. Um, I got the pleasure to work with him at, at, at um, Philadelphia Orchestra several years before the pandemic, maybe like a year before the pandemic. And he took to me and was like, he would call me and say, Karen, can you come sing this? And so he's writing his first opera, The Jonah People. Mm. That's for Nashville Symphony. And then he's writing another piece for me about, um, about uh, based on the life of Clara Lumper, who was a civil rights leader in Oklahoma City. So I'm mm-hmm. very excited about that chamber piece. Uh, and of course, I'm excited to do Tosca, the opera Puccini's Tosca in Edmonton, which is my debut there. And Friar and Dallas. Um, but it is these other projects like the world premiere Shona Capello's Songs in Flight, which is based off of slave narratives. You know, um, yeah, I, I got a lot going on. Opera, concert, I'm doing four recitals next year. Um, I'm doing some and also, I'm curating many projects for the future now. So please pray for me. Keep me in your prayers and your thoughts that I can keep my energies <laughs> energies up and see these things through because they're important, not just for me, but for me to put them in the space for the, so that other sisters can come and they can continue doing these doing these new premieres and stuff and um, yeah. and trying to stay out of my own way. Well, you ain't made it this far for nothing. So, you know. To, to, to a big and, and bright future. My, my last question for you, you know, kind of looping back to one of the things we were talking about earlier. We have to build this solidarity, you know, of course, across the board. But I think that solidarity begins when we talk about the specific communities within the community of uh, music. What are, what are your words to all the black musicians listening who still may feel a way about this person or that person, how can we move closer to actually having that unified front so that we can get somewhere in this industry? Respect. We have to understand respect and not respect in a way of you have to kiss the ring because I think that that is also plays a big part in it um that that the idea of people feeling like they have to be beholden to someone that came before them because of whatever or whatever but i think if we remember why we all got into this in the first place like we all got into it for the same reasons for the most part it was the love and the transformative power of music and all of us come from all different places but we are all now in this space together and I think we need to we need to hold more onto that and actually have conversations with one another. Listen, there has never been a time where you were able to I was never when I was 25 didn't have access to any of the artists. Really? You had to write faxes and <laughs> notes through agents sure. and all of those things. You guys have unprecedented access to any artist in the world that you want. And for those of us who are in the social media space, you know, going with, you know, speaking to each other and having dialogue with each other, how about you Zoom me and say, hey, girl, I'm, I want, I got some questions to ask you or, or, or you know, can not just to advance the career, but just to get to know, because a lot of people think that they know about my, how I got into this business, but they really don't. They really don't. And when I tell them, because it's something that they heard, they're, I'm like, no, that's actually not my story. That's actually not how I feel. And so I just think the dialogue, the level of respect, 
um, that we should have for one another as artists, the connection, realizing that we all came into this for the same reasons, you know, um, and taking down this whole like idea of these people are this, and that person is that, or this group is this, or this age is the assumptions about people or the assumptions about one another. But, you know, we are fighting cultural, historic DNA battles. And, and I think understanding that part too, that some of this ain't our fault. Some of this is just not our fault. And so if we put that first and forward, also with all the other things I said, I think we can get, we, we, can, we can get a little farther and get off of that social media and actually back to connecting with one another. You can tell the world, arranged there by Margaret Bonds, featuring Karen Slack. You better sing, Karen. Mm. I really love the energy that she brings to music, the aesthetic that she brings uh, to the, the operatic field. A pleasure and an honor to get to feature uh, my conversation with Karen Slack. One of the things that we were we were touching on and, and talking about, we spent a lot of time uh, talking, you know, after the recording, as I as I tend to with guests. But we were really digging into the issue of the generational divide between people who have the same vision, or at least a similar vision, the same direction as far as progress in the arts, but the means is what separates people specifically when it comes to generations, at least on the black side of things. I, I can, you know, I can say that there are older black folks and, and by older, I, I mean like folks in their 70s and 80s. You know, I'm, I'm not being like that about the 50 year old. I'm, I'm saying there are older people who had to endure things that we didn't have to endure. And a part of that enduring was taking on certain norms and and status mm. quo to, to really make that possible. And then I believe from that, there's this idea that, you know, activism, uh, progress should be engaged in a certain way while mm -hmm. you have a younger generation who's ready to just go in there and shake the table right. or, or do things differently. How do you, how do you uh, parlay the difference between the uh, generational visions and, uh, and approaches to shifting the arts? I feel like you may sit in between the people who had to completely adhere to respectability to get into the space and those of us who are just ready to burn stuff down or, mm -hmm. you know, shake it all up how, how, do, how do you stand in the middle of that sort of tug of war if i knew i would tell you i'm just doing it mm. uh, i'm trying to be the the word somebody used was the interlocutor sure the uh the go-between but in broadcasts we have to shout out bob christensen and bill morlock yeah. who were doing uh their tandem show that was described as a couple of teenagers smoking cigarettes behind the concert hall right and okay, so then what are we? We're we're a couple of people smoking a joint inside of the concert hall and arguing with the stewardess and the police when they show up. See, because so, it's very quaint to put. Let, let's run with that. It's very quaint and cute to put 
you know, the two guys proverbially smoking a cigarette, you know, and talking about classical music, not even at the front, out back in the alley. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's fun. But as soon as we try to come in, it's a problem, mm-hmm. you know, but, but we're coming in anyway. I am anyway. This was something that they did cover at PRPD because um, with younger listeners, the way that they listen is different. You know, far more streaming and video-oriented platforms. Uh, r- radio has some work to do. And seriously, and we'll and maybe we'll get into this a little bit more here in the in the fourth movement officially. But how would they know? Like that, that's, do, that, that's would, the question I have. How do, how do folks know how younger people listen or, or, or what the, what the trends are? How in the hell do you, how, how do you even know? Let, let's, let, let's continue that in the fourth movement, but to transition us into the fourth movement, you actually had a, a musical suggestion inspired by your time down there in New Orleans. I did. Now you've been to the French Quarter, right? Oh yeah, of okay. course. So there's a lot of those gas lamps, mm-hmm. very romantic, looks very cool. But also very spooky. They don't put off a lot of <laughs> Light. Right, so okay. you can get robbed down there. Don't get don't get New Orleans twisted. Right, but see the thing the the <laughs> thing about the French Quarter was is like each night after we're leaving dinner, you know, and we're going back outside, getting ready to go back to the hotel. I could see there's this sort of siren call. There's this idea that you know there's some sort of sexy sinister monster over here. But the longer you stay, the more willing you become to get closer to the edge sure. and maybe go down that alley where that little sexy sinister monster is. And that made me think of this song by Concrete Blonde. It's called Bloodletting, the vampire song, but it's just, it, the, the guitars in it are just evil sounding to me. And there's a, uh, in the, um, in the chorus, she says, I got the ways and means to New Orleans. I'm going to go to the river where it's warm and green, have a drink, walk around. Got a lot to think about. And so I would listen to that and wonder how long would it take for me to become that sexy, sinister monster hanging out in the shadows. You know, um, well, first I'll say this reminds me of uh, Anne Rice's books, and she lives in mm-hmm. New Orleans. You know, I have my Anne Rice uh, phase. But, you know, I will also say there's some, look, n- n- not not to give too much up, but, you know, I have family lineage uh, link down to New Orleans. It's some it's some real it's some real shit down there. Like people don't don't think that the whole witchy vampire thing is just some cute tourist thing. You'll find yourself with a finger cut off mm. or 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 fucked up mm. in in some way if you go if if that siren because what does a siren call? See, the, uh, calls call you to the, the rocks, right? Calling to the ship to 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 get you fucked up, mm-hmm. you know. So anyway, don't don't think it's sweet down there. All respect, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All respect. respect. Anyway, so we're here in the in the final movement, the the triloquy movement, the true and real movement so you know to i want you to speak to you know uh what you're taking away from this public radio conference and you know how it's impacted um, your approach to these conversations and how you're going to engage these conversations at work but just to continue the the conversation that we were just happen just having a lot of folks 
and and I'll lift this up specifically, uh, just not exclusively on public radio, but we have a lot of conversation about, okay, well, this is how young people do this, or this is what we need to reach them in X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. My question is always, how do you know? Where, where does that data, where does that approach come from? How many 20-somethings were... We're, we're at the conference and, and, and in the hotel, you know, how, how, how diverse, not only racially, but um, when it comes to gender, when it comes to ability, was there anyone there um, who uses uh, sign language, you know, figuring out how this medium can engage them? These are just all of the, you know, pick apart sort of questions that come to my mind as soon as I hear you talk about what big wigs are discussing when it comes to how young people engage radio. Right. Um, that was one of the big main sessions in the larger ballroom, Perceptions of the Multicultural Audience. Warren Kurtzman and Megan Campbell, both of Coleman Insights, had extensive data sure. to show all of all of these things. Um, and l- like I said before, public radio, uh, radio across the board has some work to do to, to keep the attention of that group. Um, somebody that they interviewed actually said in their segment, um, public radio was what they listened to with their grandparents. Right. And everyone went, oh, okay. But that's the perception. Yeah. And they need to hear it from somebody who believes that, you know, not the person giving the consultation, but they showed the raw data. They, so, they came in with interviews and showed the raw data. So, so do you think folks like me are taken for granted that certain people just aren't aware of certain perceptions? If the, I listen to public radio with my grandmother, got a few oohs and ahs from the crowd, that, that must mean that we need to work on actually continuing the dialogue so that truth doesn't get oohs and ahs. It just is... A matter of fact, because mm-hmm. I wouldn't respond to that any sort of way. I'd be like, yeah, of course, that's where they listen to public radio at the grandma's house. Right. And it's it's important to have that realization as you move forward and try to stay relevant. Yeah. Because that was another conversation that happened. Intelligence Squared had a debate with Eric Newsom and Kamal Foster. Uh, Kamel's uh, one of the hosts of the fifth column, and he stood right there arguing the point that public radio isn't relevant. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to tell you that I'm going to be bringing in more of Eric Newsom's energy on this podcast because I like him. I like I like the, the approach that he was taking. I have to uh, give a quick shout out, though, to all of the people who – PRPD is really news heavy. And it so is, for yep. the So for the – music focused sessions to be as well attended as they were gave me hope pr prx i think people are going to be paying a lot of attention to them and the way that they are bringing non-white hosts and subject matter to the airwaves shout out to dr byron green looking forward to having more conversations with him on the panel that i presented um it's amazing for me to i basically i want to get to this let me i'll, I'll get there but what i want to get to is uh, a few opuses ago, I said there are other white folks who are doing the work to try to change. And I was lucky enough to be on a panel with some of those people that are doing it. So first off, shout out to Megan Oglesby, my colleague that I presented with. But down the line, Suzanne Nance from All Classical Portland, you know, their uh, recording uh, initiative for uh, recording inclusivity initiative. They got a $100,000 grant to make that thing go, man. And Suzanne was a consummate presenter. Fantastic information. Uh, And then Dr. Louise Toppin, she spent all of the pandemic putting together Margaret Bond's 
sheet music. So that means it's going to be performed. That means it's going to be recorded so that we can air it. Uh, Monica Vischer from Colorado Public Radio, they have an amazing program to record spirituals. That These have been going on for a while. They're ahead of American public media doing this. And a lot of, of radio stations have the, the resources to be able to do these projects. But also, shout out to the radio stations who have a, a lack of resources, and they're just doing their damnedest to try to keep the station running. Shout out to them. Uh, and, and so that's why I'm saying, uh, give your public radio station some support, because there are people, I'm telling you, there are people out there who are trying to make the change. But what's in it for them? You know, you talk about the folks who are hosts of this or that, or have uh, have gotten $100,000 for X, Y, and Z, you know, but what's in it for that person to give their public radio station a try when we live in a world where just about anything you want to listen to, you have access to instantly. Um, you can do so on demand. You don't have to wait around for a certain day or time yep. to engage something. Yep. What's really in it for people to continue to engage that medium? Everybody on that panel was in it because it's the right thing. I'm saying for the audience, you know, we oh. g- give your public, <laughs> give, you say, give your public radio station a try. Why? What's, if you're saying that to me, what's in it for me to do that? No, not to give it a try. Give them some money. And I know, but we'll get to the reason why to give it a try, because you have to give it a try to give it some money in the first place. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm telling you, I saw it. I sat in the room with the people who are taking the steps. Some of them have the resources to take big, meaningful, easy to show results tests or um, uh projects you know they, they they have it but the stations that are trying to keep everything just going trying to keep the 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 music coming they were coming up and and hearing like some of the uh the examples that megan and i were given about uh how much it costs for the project that we were doing and they thought well maybe this is within our reach so i think that there's the realization there and I tried to tell everybody that if you can put some money in a composer's pocket and then put their their music on the air, they will become an ambassador for you. They will tell the good work that you're doing out in the community, and it can only grow from there. We're making the case internally, you know, orchestras, radio stations, opera houses, you know, the cases are being made internally as to what we have to do to make an attempt to reach these audiences that... Uh, we have never had or audiences that mm-hmm. we have lost. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it up by asking this, and maybe we can spend a few weeks uh, uh, chewing on this, okay? Let's, let's speak very literally. I do not listen to my local public radio station. Question number one, does that matter to people in positions of power over there. And question number two, what do you think, Scott, what do you think is the content or the initiative or the whatever that's going to get me in that listenership in the in the future? Because we can talk about my unique and specific history with public radio here locally. We also have to talk about the many, many, many other people who feel a similar way that I might and mm-hmm. have, you know, similar feelings or or perspectives or experiences. What 
is going to get me, in your opinion, what is going to get me turning that dial and tuning in and eventually even making a contribution to the station? What is that? Uh, Garrett, I don't know what people in what people are thinking when they hear that you are not listening. I don't know. Number two, I don't know if they're going to get you. So I don't. I, so so I so I don't know if the institutions are going to get a lot of communities. Uh, get get uh, get a lot of folks. And right, my 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 critique is that that question needs an answer. So fine, let's lift it off of me. What is the public a public radio station doing to get the audience member who gets in their car and only listens to the rock station or only listens to the hip hop station? Yes, everyone is feeling good. You know, in in inside of the inside of the panel spaces and and talking about everything that's happening, we have to push forward and actually develop answers to those questions. What is it going to take to get X person mm-hmm. listening to our radio station? You you can't offer me an answer to that yet, and I think that's a testament to where we are mm-hmm. and where we need to go to actually engage that corner of the arts as a means of. Of, uh, of of propelling new ideas and progressive thought across Western classical music. Mm-hmm. As we were talking about last week, I think public radio has a very uh, unique responsibility and a very unique opportunity to be the change maker, to be the taste maker. Mm-hmm. But if institutions can't answer the question, how do we get this person listening, then you don't really have a plan. You, you, you don't know what you're doing. You're just sitting in the echo chamber. Right. We've talked about that. Have a plan and be ready to defend it going forward. Um, I don't have an answer for you because I'm still processing a lot of the conference and remembering things. But there are stations that are trying. There are stations that are further ahead than American public media is in this stepping process. And then there are other smaller stations, like I said, who are just doing everything they can to keep the lights on. But their interest is there. I saw it, man. I saw the people in the rooms taking all of this information in and seeing what works for them or what might work for them. And so at least the steps are happening to where they're trying to get to a listener like yourself. All right. Well, I hope one day you have uh, an answer to that question because that's what's going okay, to, I guess that's the million dollar question, Yeah, you know, and, and it, and it always will be, I'm saying, I think we can develop answers to those. Those answers involve going way beyond the status quo, going way beyond what has been and trying things that are completely different toward getting that completely different audience mm-hmm. and those completely different sets of, of contributions. Mm. I agree with you, but that doesn't mean that the stations are going to stop taking the steps that they are now, wherever they are in the process. Sure. You know, and, and they're going to hope that maybe a a listener like you will turn over one day. Hope. Hmm. Well, in there. All right. Well, I hope, I hope that y'all figure it out. See y'all next week. (laughs) 